Well, welcome once again to Groton Bible Chapel on Easter Sunday, 2023. My name is Gary Campbell. I'm the lead pastor here at GBC. And uh, it's my privilege to welcome you. If you are a guest joining us this morning, either in this building or next door or online, uh, I'm really grateful that you've taken time to be here with us today. And it is not lost on me the privilege of what it means to open the Word of God, the Bible, and share some of who Jesus is with you this morning. I count it a privilege. And so with that in mind, allow me to pray and invite the presence of God Almighty to be with us and to speak to our hearts. Pray with me. Our God and Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this resurrection day that we can celebrate your victory over death. Lord God, as we open your word this morning, would you by your Holy Spirit speak to each one of us in a supernatural way, having something to, to, to uh, move in each one of our hearts. Lord, help us to be open to what you have to say. Help us to be able to set aside all that is coming the rest of today, all that has happened this last week. We give you this time. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, you know, springtime provides ample visuals for the idea of resurrection, right? It's not just that Jesus and the providence of God was resurrected at the time of Passover, but it's also that springtime is when new life bursts forth. And so as we talk about Jesus' resurrection, we also need to talk about the moment when an individual experiences the resurrection of faith in Christ. In my own life personally, and then through my time uh, just living on this life, I've had the opportunity, particularly in ministry, to see that, that moment when faith bursts forth from the human heart like a little sprout pushing out of the soil. It's tender, it's new, and it's new life. It's a powerful moment when a, when a, a, a mind who has come to understand some facts and those facts make what some have called that 18-inch journey to the heart. And all of a sudden, a person is spiritually illumined to the gospel, to what Jesus has done. And there's a step of faith that's taken to new life. It's like a plant reaching for the light and the warmth of the sun as a heart reaches for the light and the warmth of Jesus and the message of his gospel. So kind of with those two thoughts in mind this morning, we're gonna get to the heart side, but I wanna start with the mind. Because I think for most of us, particularly in the West and in modern times, we need to understand some things about Christ's death, burial, and resurrection here uh, before we will allow them to kind of penetrate here. And so we're going to talk this morning a little bit about Christ's resurrection uh, in that manner. And before we do that, to really to talk about the miracle of Jesus' resurrection, and yes, we believe that Jesus actually physically, bodily rose from the grave, we need to start by agreeing that he actually died. Our first big point this morning is that Jesus really died. Now, to early, uh, early groups of people in early centuries following the cross of Christ, this was not a necessity. But to modern peoples, around the 1800s, an argument began to spring up against the validity of Christ's resurrection that said that he wasn't actually dead. He was, the term was swooning, and he was resuscitated in the tomb as opposed to being resurrected in the tomb. So it's fairly a modern theory, but it's one that perpetuates to today. And I will tell you, having read a bunch on this, a lot of the scholarly work along these lines from those who propose this idea isn't that robust. And so we're going to look at that, some of those things this morning. We'll be in Mark's gospel for our biblical text. Mark's gospel is the second book of the Bible in the New Testament. And we're going to begin in the 41st verse. It says this, <clears throat> In Galilee, women followed him, that is Jesus, and took care of him. Many other women had come up with him to Jerusalem. And when it was already evening, because it was the day of preparation, 
that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, now the Sanhedrin is the Jewish uh, religious council, uh, who himself was looking forward to the kingdom of God, came and boldly went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised that he, that is Jesus, was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked whether he had already died. When he found out from the centurion, he gave the corpse to Joseph. After he had bought some linen cloth, Joseph took him down, wrapped him in the linen, and laid him in the tomb, cut out of the rock, and rolled a stone against the entrance to the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were watching where he was laid. Chapter 16. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they could go and anoint him. And very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb at sunrise. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone from the entrance to the tomb for us? So before we look at the resurrection itself, let's look at this idea that Jesus really died. And I want to kind of uh, approach this from uh, the standpoint that there's credible evidence for the fact that Jesus really died on a cross. We'll look at, at uh, biblical evidence, historical, and finally logical. Uh, it's it's no, well-known, well-documented now. You can read a lot on the web about crucifixion uh, in, as a method of execution. But while it wasn't just the Romans who practiced uh, this form of execution, they kind of developed it into, for lack of a better term, an art form. It was designed to be the most brutal and humiliating form of execution that could drag on at times for two, three, four days as a person suffered publicly naked in front of the world to the point of death. It was reserved for the worst of criminals for the lowest of society. In 1968, for the first time, a crucified victim was exhumed in an archaeological dig. To my knowledge, it's still the only crucified person where you can see the nails going through the bones of, in particular, the heel. It's probably that there aren't others because crucified victims were tossed into open, shallow graves, sometimes mass graves, because nobody cared about them. Nonetheless, the swoon theory persisted uh, beginning in the 1800s. And so we're going to look at the swoon theory again from those three perspectives, biblical, historical, and logistical. First, in our text this morning, Pilate is surprised that Jesus has already died. And it's likely that uh, that's because crucifixion normally dragged on. But of course, Jesus flogging, the beating and the whipping that he took on, not to mention a spear that was thrust through his side would have hastened his death. And Pilate is, uh, is surprised. And so he verifies through the Roman centurion Christ's death. The Roman centurion would have been the one who oversaw the execution, execution of Jesus and could authoritatively verify that he had an ex in, fact been, uh, in fact died. And so then the text says, upon verifying that through the Roman centurion, the corpse is given to Joseph. Here in the biblical text, three fairly important people, Pilate the governor, a Roman centurion, and a Jewish official, Jewish leader, all confirmed and affirmed, verified that Jesus was in fact dead. That's our biblical evidence. What about historical well, we can, we can go back now, and there's a lot of documentation on the, on the web and other in medical journals as to what causes medically, ultimately, did crucified victims die from. There's about 8 to 10, depending on uh, what you're reading. It's most likely that Jesus died from hypovolemic shock or asphyxia or a combination of the two. And the biggest clue to that is in John chapter 19. In John 19, we don't have time to read the text this morning. I encourage you to do that later. 
Uh, rather than breaking Jesus' legs, which was, would have been the custom to speed the process of death, and a victim's legs were broken, could no longer push up against their legs to fill their lungs with air. But Jesus, it says, already appeared to be dead. And so a Roman soldier thrust a spear into his side and the text says that blood and water flowed out. Now, incidentally, for another time, the fact that Jesus' legs are not broken and a spear is thrust in his side fulfills two biblical prophecies from the Old Testament hundreds of years before. But nonetheless, the blood and water flowed out. And what the first century folks would not have known that we know today is that this was a symptom of, uh, could be of both hypovolemic shock and asphyxia called pericardial effusion, where fluid would build up around the heart. And upon thrusting that spear into Jesus' side, it would have punctured, punctured the sac around the heart, thus leading to the blood and water flowing out. And this was not something that could be survived from. And so we can look more at historical examples, but that's just one clue from understanding the history of crucifixion and the study that's been done. Let's move to a logical argument. Paul Little, in his classic work, Know Why You Believe, says this about the nature of the swoon theory. He says, let's assume that Christ was buried alive and swooned. Is it possible to believe that he would have survived three days in a damp tomb without food or water or attention of any kind? Would he have survived being wrapped in 75 pounds of spice-laden grave clothes? Would he have had the strength to extricate himself from those grave clothes, push the heavy stone away from the mouth of the grave, overcome the Roman guards, and walk miles on feet that had been pierced with spikes? Then at that point, and this might be the most important sentence, would he have had the strength to present himself as a glorious and majestic God to be worshiped? Such a belief is more fantastic than the simple fact of the resurrection itself. In many ways, that's true. If you read the rest of the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll see that when Jesus appears before the disciples, he's not a, a medically beat up person. He is majestic, he's authoritative, and they fall down and they worship him. And so we see just from a quick survey, and this is the tiniest fraction of evidence that's available in these three categories, that there is evidence to say that Jesus was definitely dead. Beyond that, there's sort of the, the, the witness of Jesus' disciples and the women that followed him that points us to the fact that, that there was no question on their part that he was dead. Namely, resurrection for them was inconceivable. It's not just the modern mind in the West that, that kind of bucks against the notion of a miraculous resurrection. They didn't think the resurrection was even on the radar such that the disciples themselves after Jesus died were hidden away in secret, fearing their own arrest in an absolutely despair that he had, had died. Everyone who loved him was mourning him. And yet Jesus had said over and over clearly in the gospels, directly to the disciples, I'm gonna suffer and die. And on the third day, I'm gonna rise again. In three days, I'm gonna rise again. I'm gonna rise again on the third day. And yet on the third day, there is not one disciple camped or parked at the tomb waiting for him to rise from the dead. They're cowering somewhere. In addition, the women that we just read about in chapter 16, verse one, what do they do? What do they do? They, they purchase spices, aromatic spices to go to the tomb to do what? To anoint and to honor his corpse. There's no expectation that Jesus was going to rise from the dead. He was fully dead. Jesus really died. While we've made historical and logical points, I want to make a theological point this morning. We are in church after all, and that is this. Jesus' death was for sin. Jesus' death was for my sins. Jesus' death was for your sins. 
In fact, Paul is so emphatic about this that when he talks about the death of Jesus, he always attaches it to the reason for Jesus' death, namely the atonement for sin. To the Corinthian believers near the end of his first letter, he, said, he says, Christ died for our sins. In the letter to the Galatians, which is probably his first letter, he says that he gave himself for our sins. In his second letter to the Corinthians, he says that, that God made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin himself to be sin for us. That is that Jesus Christ embodied our filth, our rebellion, our trespass, our neglect. All of our sin was embodied on him. And because he was fully human and yet didn't have sin, he was able to stand in our place. Because he was fully God, he then could absorb the eternal wrath, judgment, and punishment of God the Father on himself. And that's exactly what occurred on the cross. And Paul makes clear over and over again, Christ died for your sins, for, for my sins. This was the primary reason to satisfy the eternal judgment of God Almighty. I wonder if you believe that this morning. Jesus really died. He really died for our sins, but he also really did rise again. And our second point is that Jesus was really seen alive. It's important that we don't just acknowledge that Christ raised from the dead, but that he was witnessed to be alive, that he was seen. And so let's get the first sort of glimpse of that again in, in Mark's gospel, the, the 16th chapter. We're gonna back up and overlap a little bit. Verse two, very early in the morning on the first day of the week, they, that is the women, went to the tomb at sunrise and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone at the entrance to the tomb for us? Looking up, they noticed that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he told them. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they put him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee and you will see him there just as he told you. There is credible evidence for the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And it begins our biblical evidence with the eyewitness testimony of the women. These women and, and Mark names them three times by name. They go to the tomb and see the place where his body should have been and it's not there. And then they're given a message uh, from the angel to go and to tell his disciples to meet him in Galilee and then they will see him there. And we can read of that appearance in Luke chapter 24 where Jesus appears to the disciples and he says this, look at my hands and feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see because a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you can see I have. And having said this, he showed them his hands and his feet is an additional element to the testimony of the women here. This is a time uh, of extreme patriarchy where the, the witness of women, particularly in a legal sense, was absolutely uh, dismissed. Uh, people like Josephus, Flavius Josephus, the great Jewish historian, and Celsus, the philosopher in the second century AD, uh, said things like, the testimony of women should be inadmissible in court because it's hysterical. It's okay to be upset at that if you're a lady this morning. But that's the time that the Bible is written in. And so the very idea that the gospel writers would over and over put as the, if they were making it up, that they would put women as the repeated first witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus would only undercut their, their uh, attempts to create a false gospel if this was all being done and written into later. 
And so as a matter of fact, the testimony of women here in the first century to the resurrection of Jesus actually validates that what we have in the Bible is authentic. That's our kind of biblical evidence for the resurrection. There are, there are more, but let's move to historical. Two major events happen right after Christ's resurrection or right after this event. It's the birth of the church itself. That is the group of people that eventually are called at Antioch Christians. The church today, all of you, the church around the world today, that all of a sudden, uh, immediately subsequently following this event, rigidly traditional Jewish people and pagan Gentile people of every ethnic background and, and linguistic background and cultural background began to meet together first in Jerusalem and then spreading out all over the world. And they began to meet together and worship this man as God which for the monotheistic Jews was absolutely unthinkable unless something really significant happened here. And so the church was born. We sing a song that talks about that and this, the miracle of the church. Even today, we say all the time here at GBC that the church through the Holy Spirit of God, through the blood of Christ, draws people together that apart from Jesus would probably never hang out together. That's what the church is. And it happened immediately following this moment. Second historical point is that those rigid traditional Jewish people who had been worshiping God on the sixth day of the week, on the Sabbath for thousands of years, almost instantaneously began to worship him on the first day of the week. What would move a people who were that rigidly, rigidly traditional in large part to begin to worship with Gentiles on the first day of the week if something monumentous didn't happen on that resurrection Sunday? History points to the fact that Jesus really rose from the dead. Finally, there's the witness of the New Testament writers themselves. In their book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, which has a compelling title, uh, Frank Turek and Norm Geisler say this, the New Testament writers suffered persecution and death when they could have saved themselves by recanting. If they made up the resurrection story, they certainly would have said so when they were about to be crucified in the case of Peter, stoned in the case of James, or beheaded in Paul's case. But no one recanted, and 11 out of 12 were martyred for their faith. Eyewitnesses are a key part of how we know that the resurrection took place. And so Jesus appears to the women later. We, we can read of his appearance to Mary Magdalene. He appears to the disciples that we looked at. He appears to doubting Thomas, who was helpful for many of us. He appears to Paul the apostle and eventually to over 500 people Paul tells us in his first letter to the Corinthians. And so we see that there is biblical, historical, and logical evidence, credible evidence for the fact that Jesus really rose from the dead. It's fair to ask the question, well, what about the gospel accounts? I'm, I'm a little familiar with the Bible. It seems that they contradict each other at different points. Doesn't that seem to undercut the idea or, or that maybe they, they wrote these things later? Well, we don't have the time this morning to go into the textual evidence, but suffice it to say that multiple witnesses with, with uh, varying accounts actually points to the strength of this account that we have in front of us. I'll turn to the authority of J. Warner Wallace, who's a homicide uh, forensic scientist, forensic detective by background. He says this about the gospel writers. He says, the gospel eyewitnesses observed a singularly powerful and memorable event and provided us with accounts that support and complement each other to provide all the details related to what really happened. They are distinctive, personal, and reliable. 
He goes on to say that in a crime scene, if you take four interviews of what happened at that crime scene and they're all the same and parallel, somebody's lying. Four accounts should have variety and yet provide compliment to them. And that's exactly what we have in the Bible. Jesus really died. He really died for your sins, for my sins. Jesus was really seen alive. And the biblical record is credible. So let's make another theological point this morning. Therefore, we could say Jesus' resurrection gives us real hope. Real hope. You know, Paul spends an entire chapter at the end of his first letter to the Corinthians doing this sort of logical back and forth argument about the resurrection itself. And essentially what it boils down to is he says, if Jesus didn't actually raise from the dead, then Christians are the biggest group of fools ever and we're wasting our time. And that message is spoken to us today as well. It's not just in the first century. But he gets to the conclusion, you can read that on your own, and he eventually says, but Jesus did rise from the dead. And therefore, he comes to the end of the chapter and he says this, when this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility, when this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying when it is written will take place, death is swallowed up in victory. Paul says, in other words, when this life ends, when I die and I step into eternity, now the equation of Christ's cross and, and ultimately the resurrection comes into play. He says, where death is your victory, where death is your sting, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But Jesus died for sin. Jesus dealt with our sin on the cross. He provided the payment for our sin. And so Paul explodes into this final statement, this exclamatory statement where he says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul speaking there of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. His story can be imprinted on our story. You see, the resurrection gives us real hope in at least three ways. Number one, the resurrection overcomes the sorrow over my sin and of the cross itself. Paul Tripp said this. He said, in a real way, things are worse than you ever thought they could be. Talking about our sin and the punishment that is due us for our sin. But he says, God's grace is greater than you could ever imagine it would be. And then he says, biblical faith lives at the intersection of shocking honesty, that is honesty about my sinfulness. Only you know the darkness of your own heart. Well, you and God. It's the intersection of shocking honesty and glorious hope. The resurrection overcomes the sorrow of my sin and of the cross. It's why we wear a symbol of Roman execution as a sign of hope on a, on a necklace or put it on the front of our buildings. The resurrection turns that around. The resurrection also allows me to face suffering. Johnny Erickson Tata, some of you know her story. She was a teenager when she dove into a pool and, and broke her neck, and she's been a quadriplegic ever since. This is in the 1970s. She's had a powerful ministry. She's a speaker and author. And talking about Jesus' resurrection and her physical suffering that she's endured for decades now, she says, in heaven, I will be free to jump up, dance, kick, and do aerobics. The resurrection gives us real hope, but even suffering beyond physical suffering, suffering over that broken or strained relationship, suffering over that financial situation you can't see your way out of, Suffering over that debilitating disease. Suffering over the grief, that loss of a loved one. Tim Keller in Jesus the King said this, you can face the worst things with joy and hope. The resurrection means we can look forward with hope 
to the day our suffering will be gone. Resurrection allows us to face suffering. Resurrection also writes the story that we're all longing for. There's this interesting phenomenon in the last probably 30 years within our culture, and it's that narrative art, and, uh, that is stories, movies, books, and so forth, has, has moved away from happy endings. Happy endings are passe. They're shot, thought of as childish or escapist. And yet the argument can be made, and Keller makes this in his book, that because of the resurrection, happy ending is the best description of, of reality, of ultimate reality, because God is going to put everything to right. He says this in, his, in the same book. He says, the gospel is the ultimate story, and it shows victory coming out of defeat, strength coming out of weakness, life coming out of death, rescue coming from abandonment. And it can be your story as well. I've attempted in a very brief way this morning to kind of address what goes on in our heads and our understanding that Jesus really died and he really died for our sins. And also to grapple again, understandably very briefly, but with the fact that Jesus was really seen alive and that therefore we have hope. And this is why Jesus, before he is raised from the dead, before he is executed on a Roman cross, before he goes to trial or he's even arrested, he says to one of his dear friends in a prophetic statement about himself, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Jesus, when he says everyone, he means you this morning in 2023 on Easter morning. And then he asks you, and he asks me this question, do you believe this? And this morning, by telling you a story, it's the story of my friend, Chris. Some of you know Chris. You'll see his, his picture here. About six months ago, uh, Chris gave his life to Jesus and trusted Christ as his savior. And I think Chris would have told you at that point that, that he be believed in God and he had uh, some religious background, but uh, he didn't fully grasp salvation. And, and more importantly, what he would articulate is that he just hadn't had that moment with God where he'd kind of made the transaction. Before we get to Chris's moment, if you will, I want to back up and kind of tell it through the lens of what happened six months earlier. You see, in the spring of 2022, I had the privilege of baptizing Chris's wife, Amy. And Amy loves the Lord Jesus, and, and she wanted to follow the Lord in baptism so that others might know that she belongs to him. And so in the moments before Amy went under the water, I prayed with her, as is our custom, thanking the Lord for what Jesus had done in her life and for this really special moment. And then I prayed for Chris. I prayed that Chris would, would resolve what was ever in the way of his embracing Jesus as his Savior and Lord. And that, and that one day, Amy and I would see Chris in the tank being baptized too. And as I began to pray for Chris, Amy began to weep. As I held her in that moment, I could feel her sobs, but I didn't realize that others could see that, that it was visible. And so eventually I dipped Amy beneath the waters. We embraced, everybody celebrated. It was a great day. It was a powerful moment. And six months later, Chris and I and a bunch of other guys, we went to man camp at Berea in New Hampshire. And in the middle of Saturday, Chris pulled me aside and said, hey, can we talk for a few minutes? And I said, sure. So we went off to a quiet place. We actually went to this very spot down by the water. And Chris asked me a surprising question. He said, could you explain like specifically salvation to me? What happens when someone gets saved? What does it mean to be saved? And I was kind of surprised because 
Chris and I had spent time together a few times and, and had talked about this. It felt like he, he knew what it was to be saved. But I shared with him as I did with you this morning. Jesus died for our sins. And Jesus actually rose from the grave, giving us victory over sin. That by trusting what he had done on our behalf, we could have a relationship with God. And Chris said, I, I understand, I get that. But I guess I just, I haven't had that moment of clarity, that encounter with God. And he said, it's like my wife. He said, I look at my wife's faith and I envy what, what she has. God, her relationship God with, with God means everything to her. And she has these moments with, th- with him. And then he said this, it's like last spring when you baptized her. I watched her in the tank and as you were praying, she was crying. I've never had that kind of moment with God. Now, at that moment, you can imagine what was going on in my mind and it gives me chills to even tell you about it this morning because the Holy Spirit just spoke to my heart and I looked at my friend and I said, Chris, do you know why Amy was crying? He said, no. He said, because I was praying for you and that one day you would be in the tank. And Chris started to cry. I said to him, Chris, I think this is your moment that you've been waiting for. And we stood there for a moment and I said, Chris, are you ready to pray and give your life to Jesus? Without hesitation, he said, yes. And he laid aside the doubts and he laid aside the uncertainties and we bowed our heads together and my friend became my brother in Christ as he received Jesus into his life. And it was a powerful moment. And just a couple weeks later, to complete the story, Chris was baptized as well, right out through those doors. Amen. You can celebrate that. Chris is with us in this service this morning and just so grateful for him allowing us to to hear his story. And my friends this morning, you've heard that Jesus died for your sins. You've heard that Jesus rose from the grave to give you new life and hope. And God is inviting you to that same point of decision. I wanna encourage you to answer the question, will you trust in him? Will you allow his story to become your story? This is your moment. This is your moment. In a couple minutes, the band behind me is gonna lead us in worship. And at that time, I'm gonna invite you to walk out of this room with me and come with me to a quiet place where we can have a few moments to talk, we can pray, and you can respond, and we can respond together with what God is doing in your life. There's two groups of people I wanna extend that invitation to this morning. The first are perhaps like Chris. You've never had that moment where you've trusted Christ as your savior. Maybe you know the message of Jesus and his love, but you've just never surrendered your life to him. Or maybe this morning is the first time that you've ever heard that Jesus died because he loves you and that he died for your sins. For you, this is a moment where that seedling of faith will sprout and begin to grow, pushing out of the soil toward the warmth and the light and the love of Jesus Christ. This is your new beginning. It's your opportunity. By the way, if someone invited you here today, if you're with a friend or relative or coworker, it's okay to lean over to them and say, I'm going, but you're coming with me. Or just grab whoever's next to you by the shirt. You don't have to go alone. The other group of people I wanna invite this morning are those who are committed believers in Jesus. You've trusted in Christ. You've experienced the goodness of God in your life, but it's been a while. Maybe you've been hiding from him or running from him. 
Maybe your heart is like this pile of papers in my office. Took this picture this week, true confession. I have a pile of papers behind my chair. It's a shred pile. And I can't bring myself to shred it because I'm convinced that once I shred it, there's gonna be something in there. And I'm like, oh no, I shredded it. Some of you have a list of excuses or delays that you've given God that are like that shred pile. They're hidden, only you know about them. It's time to shred the pile. For others of you, it might be that there are sins hidden in a place where no one else can see. And so we wanna invite you this morning to take that step of boldness.